Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. I wanted to ask you a question. I always like to begin with a question because it gets, gets us interacting a little bit. I wonder, have you ever played the blame game? Anyone ever played the blame game? Well, if you're not familiar with the blame game, heaps of fun, heaps of fun. The blame game is what we play when something breaks and then we try and figure out whose fault it was so that we can ultimately assign some responsibility on somebody. And if we the thing about the blame game is, is, is if you get better at it, you can flick to the next slide, Em. If you get better at it, or as you get better at it, the more blame you can shift, the better you are. And the objective of the blame game is that when we win, all we really need to have done is shifted more than 50% of the blame onto someone else to have won the blame game. To, to successfully argue your case in such a way, or shout loud enough perhaps, so that the other person takes on more responsibility for the problem than you do. And then you win the blame game. And the thing about it is, is as, but with practice, when you've, when you've been practicing the blame game for a while and, and uh, you're getting really good at it, sometimes you can be so good that you end up being able to to skirt all the responsibility for most of the dysfunction that exists in your life. And some of us, if we're honest, get really good at the blame game and have been for some time now. And the, the amazing thing about the blame game is that unlike Monopoly, which you can only play in certain places, the blame game, you can play anywhere, at any time, in any location, for any reason. You can play it in workplaces, you can play it in churches, you can play it in service clubs. You can play it in community groups. You can play it in families. Wherever it is that you are, you can play the blame game. All that you require is someone else and some dysfunction that is someone's fault. Now, perhaps the most obvious place that we notice people play the blame game is in politics. Anyone ever seen the blame game exist in politics? If I'm honest... Oh, it's particularly around partisan issues, if you don't know what that means, just sort of things that are separated based on the ideologies held by a particular party or another. When those sorts of things come up, the blame game is very, very obvious. And it pits one side against another. And most often, when an issue comes up or a problem, it's the shadow minister that goes first in the blame game, isn't it? It's the one who's not directly accountable, I suppose you could say, directly accountable for whatever has happened or the problem or the issue. And so they get to point their finger somewhere else. And do you remember, or if you've heard it lately, what is it that they say? Well, what a mess they've created. If we were in office, we wouldn't have done it that way. 
What a mess you've created. If, if, if we did it, we wouldn't have done it like that. And often the response, so there's always a response from a sitting government, isn't there? A soundbite of some sort. And the sitting government's response is, well, this was a policy issue before we were in government, and the previous government screwed it up. So it's not really our fault. It's actually their problem that they failed to fix, that we inherited, that we failed to fix as well. But it's really it's their fault because it started with them. Now, I don't know about you, but it takes me about two seconds to get tired of that narrative. Doesn't it? Like what, what we'd love to hear from our civic leaders, and this is true of any leadership, we'd love to hear people with solutions to problems. We get so tired of people shifting the blame on issues. And we just wish sometimes that someone would take some responsibility so that we can move forward. It's exhausting listening to people shift responsibility, isn't it? We've got no appetite for it in politics, for sure. But I've got a question for you. What about relationships? Do you have an appetite for the blame game in relationships? Do you play it there? And perhaps a follow-up question would be, if you have ever played the blame game in your relationships, how did it go? Did it work? Did it make it a healthier relationship? Did it repair anything? Hmm. I don't think it does. And the reason I'm talking about this is that we... Sorry, my knee just sort of nearly fell over for a second there. We're in a series at the moment called Reassembly Required. A beginner's guide to repairing broken relationships. So that's what we're doing. Is we're, t- we're talking about what it means to repair the broken and dysfunctional relationships in our life. They can be any sort of relationship. It could be family, it could be work colleagues, it could be distant relatives, it could be friends, spouse, whatever. It doesn't matter. And in the first week, I highlighted that we all have relationships. It's a universal part of being a human being. It doesn't matter how reclusive or introverted you think you are, you have relationships in your life and you are required to have them to live a meaningful and life-giving existence. We actually, as, as human beings, we don't function very well without relationships. And the studies tell us that without meaningful and life-giving relationships, we live a much shorter and, and, and frankly, less healthy life too. That's what the data tells us. And so we know that it's important that the relationships in our life are healthy in some way. And so when they break, we've got to figure out how to fix them. But the thing I also highlighted in the first week is that for most of us, we don't know why our relationships are working. We haven't really been taught too well growing up or what have you since then about what it means to have life-giving relationships, what, what, why they work. And so, like a car, if we don't know why it works, when it breaks, we don't, know how to, we don't know how to fix it. We don't know how to fix something if we don't know why it's working. And so, for most of us, our approach to fixing the broken relationships we have in our life begins with what we know as the C4 approach to relationship management. Anyone remember that one? It is an absolute coincidence that it, it's, C4 is also a plastic explosive. No relationship to the result of using this approach in your relationships whatsoever. And the C4, relation, C4 approach to relationship management involves four key steps. It involves attempting to convince the person that you, the other person. It involves convicting them. 
trying to convict them. It involves coercing them and it involves control. When we attempt to do these things in our life, all of which are designed to try and get a person to see our way of thinking and for them to realize that we are right, we end up blowing up our relationships. Yet for most of us, if we're honest, and this is true of me, so I don't know, I don't want to point any fingers, but I think we're all guilty of this. The when thing when our relationships break, this is where we look on the first instance for our relationship management tools. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And what we've realized is that repairing a broken relationship is a learned skill. It's something that we need to do. It's neither intuitive nor is it comfortable. And we know that when we default to, the, to, the, to those skills of trying to convince the other person of our perspective, all we do is end up making mistakes and making things worse. Yet for some reason, that's, they're the things we go to. So that over this series, we've been figuring out a different way to repair the broken relationships in our life. And one of the things that I spoke about in the first week was that the ultimate goal of, of repairing a broken relationship is reconciliation. But reconciliation requires you to have all the pieces. But for you and I in a relationship, we're only half of the equation. And so our goal is not actually reconciliation. Our goal when it comes to repairing a broken relationship is no regrets. It is our job to do everything we know how to do to repair the relationship. And then the rest is up to them. Because some of you, and you, you reflected, some of you had spoke to me about this afterwards, you never realized this. And it was that we try and repair a relationship with an expectation that the other person is going to respond in certain ways, and when they don't, we get upset, and we wonder why the relationship is still broken. And that's because our goal is to do all that we can do and then leave the rest up to them. Without expectation, we move towards them. And Ken talked about last week that reassembly always starts with us, regardless of who made the fuss. Regardless of whose fault it is initially, reconciliation has to start with us. Regardless of who initiated or made the fuss or the mess in the first place. And that our goal is to commit to getting back to the person, not back at them. Getting even is not the way forward. So before we jump into the text for today and hear what Jesus has to say, I wanted to offer you three quick observations, really. And they are that when a relationship is broken and our C4 strategy hasn't worked, at some point we decide that it's time to give up and move on. The relationship is done and it's time to finish, time to separate ourselves, time to distance ourselves. And now for some of you, that that time has been with a, a loved relative. Sometimes it's a spouse. And we say, look, we're done. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what to do. And we take ourselves through a process and we, t- we convince ourselves of three key things, I think. When we don't know how to fix it or we've tried and it didn't work. And we tell ourselves these things. The first one is, I don't really care. I don't really care. I don't really care. Ultimately, it's not that big of a deal. The relationship wasn't that big a deal anyway. But the truth of that around behind that lie is that's not really true. Because if you're still thinking about that relationship in any way, it means you do care. And I think about some of the, 
some of the relationships that have broken. I shared a few weeks, a couple of months ago, I suppose, and maybe you would know the stories of the different relationships and challenges that we encounter as a pastor, people that have chosen to leave the church for different reasons. And I think about some of those relationships, and I try and tell myself that I don't really care. But I do care. Why? Because I'm still thinking about it. And so sometimes we try and tell ourselves a lie that says we don't care, to try and harden our hearts and protect ourselves. But most of us, if we're honest, we actually do still care which means there's still something that we could do. But then we also tell ourselves, well, but I did try. I tried to fix it, and it didn't work. But that's not my fault because I tried, right? I gave it a shot, didn't work, time to move on. And then the third thing we tell ourselves is that, well, at the end of the day, it wasn't my fault anyway. So if if the repairing of the relationship didn't work, that's on them. I didn't start it. So when we try and justify the decision to leave a broken relationship on the floor, this tends to be our final destination. It wasn't my fault anyway. I didn't start it. I don't carry the responsibility for it. And so therefore, it's not my fault. It's okay for me to walk away. Now, in this beginner's guide to broken relationships... We need to remember that regardless of who started the fuss, reassembly starts with us. And as I mentioned for the, to those of us in the first week, for those of us that are Christian, I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or not, but if you are, we believe that God made the first move towards us. That our imperative to getting this right is that Jesus did all that was required to move towards us. He moved into creation, became a human being and gave his life for us and did all that was required for us to be in relationship with God. He gave his life, regardless of whether we would accept it or not. And that is our model as followers of Jesus towards repairing relationships. He did it not to get back at us, but to make a pave a way to us. So ultimately, God chose not to play the blame game and instead took the initiative that even though we were the ones that broke the relationship, He chose to take the first step. And so we are called to do the same. And so that brings us back to that blame game that I talked about and to a really irritating question that Jesus asked His followers and indeed as followers of Jesus, we, are, we ought to ask ourselves the same, or Jesus asks it of us. It's a really irritating question when they started playing the blame game. Because apparently the blame game, and I didn't really think about this, but apparently the blame game has been around for a while now. It's not a 21st century problem. It's not even a, a, a digital soundbite, Twitter and, and newspaper headline problem. This is a human being problem, shifting blame to someone else. And Jesus asks a really interesting question. But to give you some context as to where this passage is coming from, this is in the middle of his teaching called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus is teaching about the principles of the kingdom of God. And scholars believe that this wasn't a one-time teaching. This was a teaching that Jesus taught over and over and over and over and over and over again, wherever he was about the broader wisdom of what it meant for 
the kingdom of God to be realized in the world. Because when Jesus was in ministry, everything, if you, if you packed all the gospel accounts in together and tried to place a timeline, it takes about two and a half weeks to live out the gospel narratives. But we know he was around for longer than that, which means he had to say something else. And so scholars believe that because there was no podcast that anyone could listen to or a live stream that people could connect to, he had to go around to places and teach the same thing over and over again. And this is what he taught. And the Sermon on the Mount is considered wisdom literature. Why? Because it is talking about the way things are and the best way to live life. And there's two categories that Jesus teaches into. There's our relationship with God and wisdom around that. And our relationships with one another and wisdom around that. And so this is a one another teaching. It's answering the question, how do we live out our relationships in a way that reflects God's priorities. And that is in such a way that reflects God's idea of what human flourishing actually looks like. And because it's His advice, because it's the creator of the universe's advice, the one who created us, we've got to believe that it's the best advice there is out there. So let's have a look and see what it has to say. Just an aside, any parents in the room, that can relate, would be able to relate to Jesus' teaching around this. Because so often, I remember saying this to our daughters this morning, if you just did what I said, everything would be fine. Anyone relate to that? Fathers in the room or mothers, doesn't matter. Any parents in the room, you could say, or teachers even. If you just did as I said, everything would be fine. Why? Because I know better than you. Why? Because I've been around longer than you. How much more is that true of Jesus for us than it is for us, for our children. If you just done what I said, you wouldn't have broken that. You wouldn't have hurt yourself. So let's have a look at the Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Here's this question. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eyes, And pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust that's in your your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your eye? What a question. Who says Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor? Because if this is not sarcasm, I don't know what is. Because how ridiculous an idea it is that someone could have a, a speck of notice a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, yet miss that there's like a, I don't know, a jousting stick sticking out of theirs. I don't know what it would be from the first century. Something, like a plank, a piece of wood sticking out of your How could you not notice that? But notice something else. And it's really, what he's really asking is why are you judging someone else for what they've done? And not paying attention to what it is that you have done. Why are you so interested in placing blame when you don't realize what you've done in your own right? And when we think about this and this idea of a speck and, and plank, our response so often to, to someone calling us out on something like this is, well, it wasn't just a speck of sawdust, Jesus. They did something wrong, and it wasn't just a speck of sawdust. Let me tell you what it is that they did wrong. 
You hear everything, you see everything, so you were there. You know how he spoke to me. You know, you saw what she did to me. You saw how they walked out. You saw how they wouldn't accept responsibility. Jesus, this isn't a speck of sawdust. They really hurt me. They really hurt me. And then our second part of the equation is, all right, well, Jesus, I accept that maybe, yeah, maybe there is something in my eye, but it's not a plank. It's not a plank. Might be a slightly larger piece of sawdust than I'd like to admit, but it's definitely not a plank. It's not a plank. I didn't start the fire. Don't exaggerate, Jesus. I might have poured petrol on the fire, but it's not my fault. But Jesus is not done after his question. He says, how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take that speck out of your eye. Let me just take that speck out of your eye. Let me, let me phrase it another way. Allow me to fix you. Can I fix you? Is that okay? I know you're, you're a bit dysfunctional. Can I fix you? I don't really like the way you talk. Can I fix you? Can I correct you? I don't really like your behavior. Can I change that about you? Allow me to fix you. Allow me to correct you. Allow me to, to correct your perspective. Allow me to show you what it is that I see. Can I fix that speck, please? Let me take that speck out of your eye. Then he continues, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? When I read this, what I think Jesus is getting at is He's saying, you may not see things as clearly as you think you do. You and I, we might not actually see things as clearly as we think we do. And the original Greek here includes sort of a play on words that implies the ironic tone of, of the statement. Is how, is, how is it that you can help someone when you are so wounded yourself? How is it that you can help someone with such a fine issue when you are so wounded yourself that it's probably, you probably can't see what it is that even needs to be helped with them? What even is going on for them? Because you don't have the perspective because you're blinded by whatever's been going on for you. He continues... This, bit, this word hurts a little bit. He says, you hypocrite. We love that word, don't we? You hypocrite. Another word, word you could use is you pretender. Jesus accuses the Pharisees and teachers of religious law about, of this all the time. And his point is always simply this. His point is you are not who you claim to be. You are not who you claim to be. You are not as good as you think you are. You are not under the surface, what you project in the world that you are. And Jesus applies the same thing. He says, you pretender, first take the plank out of your own eye. First take the plank out of your own eye before attending to the speck in your brother's eye. When I, one of the first readings we could think of when we try and apply this passage to this idea of reconciling and build, rebuilding and repairing relationships is he, he says, so you hypocrite, first, just take the plank out of your own eye. Start there. And one reading of this could say, okay, well, Jesus, all right, I'll take the plank out of my own, my own eye. I'll just mind my own business. I'll just do my own thing. 
I'll embrace that I, the, the, the axiom of our 21st century age is you do you, I'll do me, let's do our thing, I'll fix myself, and I'll go run into my right, self-righteous corner and tell myself how right I am and how wrong they are. I'll deal with myself, and then once I'm sorted, then I'll go and deal with them. The thing is, this is a lesson in, when Jesus is talking about this, is a lesson in repairing relationships, not dividing them. So there's, there's something more that we need to, to see here. And it's the word, then. He says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. He says, first, implying there's got to be something that comes second. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then, in other words, there's something that needs to come afterwards. In other words, stop playing the blame game. Stop trying to pass off responsibility and take a long, hard look at where you contributed to a relational breakdown. And it might take you a while, but when you get there, you'll realize just how much you didn't see before. And if you don't believe God answers prayer, I challenge you to pray this this prayer. Heavenly Father, show me where this was my fault. Anyone prayed that before? That's a tough one. Why is it that God always seems to answer that prayer? I'm still praying for a for a Ferrari, and I'm still praying for a holiday, and I'm still praying for kids that do what I ask, and I'm still praying for a whole bunch of other fun things, but why is it that that's the prayer that God answers so often in my life? Why is it the prayer that's one God wants to so often answers in your life? But when we I believe when we pray it, God shows us something of the responsibility. And that's a hard thing to pray, especially when the responsibility for the, the breakdown is mostly in someone else's court. If that's the truth, it is what it is. But if you're willing to do your part, the promise on the other side of it is, and then you will see clearly, Jesus says. Once you've removed the plank from your own eye, once you've taken responsibility, once you've decided not to play the blame game and have a good look, then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Not until we have looked at ourselves, Jesus says, can you even consider looking at someone else? And so when we don't take any responsibility for a broken relationship, what we actually do is we place an immovable and invisible barrier between us and them which makes it impossible to reconcile. And we discover that when we think we're right and we're convinced that they're wrong and that it's all their fault and none of ours, then self-righteousness gets in the way. Self-righteousness becomes the barrier between us and them. But friends, when we refuse to play the blame game and when we accept responsibility for our part, when we display some self-awareness about where it is that we've contributed to a problem, to a situation, to a broken relationship, where self-righteousness hinders the way, where self-righteousness gets in the way, we'll find 
that self-awareness paves the way. Where self-righteousness gets in the way, self-awareness paves the way. This is what Jesus was teaching. It's not about trying to fix someone else. It's about looking in the mirror and realizing just how blind you might be. Just how blind I might be. And if we're honest, sometimes it's a pretty big plank. Which means sometimes we can't take it out on our own. We need some help. We might even need some surgery. Surgeries are done by professionals. And so it could just be that for some of us, we are carrying so much hurt around this stuff that we actually can't do it on our own. In the same way, you should not remove a large piece of wood out of your eye without a doctor's help. Sometimes we shouldn't try and do this stuff alone. We shouldn't just try and remove the plank, try to take all the blame, try to take all the responsibility, look too deeply into us without some help. Sometimes we might need a counsellor. Sometimes you might need to talk with a trusted friend. Might be a psychologist, a professional, someone who knows what they're talking about, someone who can help you through that journey. Because we're not meant to do this alone. And sometimes when it's really significant, we need all the help that we can get. So friends, when we refuse to play the blame game, we discover a rich opportunity to repair the relationships in our life, a way to get back close enough to do our part and see what it is God wants to do in their heart. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 18 writes it this way. He says, if it's possible, as far as it is up to you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on me, as far as it is up to us, with regards to everything that's under our authority and responsibility, live in peace with everyone. Take responsibility. Because reconciliation ultimately begins in the mirror. In the words of Michael Jackson, he's talking about the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. No message could be any clearer. If you want to make the world, I would argue your relationships, a better place to take a look at yourself and make a change. Who would have thought I'd quote to Michael Jackson in a sermon, hey? But I wonder, where is it that you or I might need to look in the mirror and realize what it is that we need to take responsibility for? Lord, if there is something I need to own in this, I want to own it. This is about doing what we would ultimately hope the other person does. And after all, if we're not willing to do what we hope another person would do, to do their part, what does that make us? Jesus used the word already. It makes us a hypocrite. If we're not willing to do what we expect others to do, 
makes us a hypocrite, and we don't want to be that. So do what needs to be done, and you never know. You never know. Maybe it's your humility. Maybe it's your confession. Maybe it's your ownership that will unlock something within the other person that they couldn't unlock on their own to repair this relationship. And here's a simple tip. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The more aware I am of what God still needs to do in me, the less aware and consumed I am by what He has still to do in someone else. Is that not true? If I were to boil everything that we've talked about today, consider just simply this. If you and I would be aware of what it is that God has to do in us, we will be blown away by how little we notice what it is that God has still yet to do in everyone else. And friends, that is what it looks like to take responsibility for our movements in the world and take a step towards repairing some relationships. So imagine if we got this right in our church, in our families, in our community, in the relationships in our life. Imagine if we stopped playing the blame game and started looking in the mirror. After all, the person in the mirror is the only one you can do anything about. And Jesus' advice is simply this, that you and I need to start there. Let's pray together, church. Loving God, I thank you for the gift of your word and the way that it speaks to us. And Lord, I know this is a hard teaching. I can tell. I feel it. But Lord, you call us to embody a heart of reconciliation in our relationships that you had in your relationship with us. And Lord, you taught us that we would be known as your disciples, but not the way that we give, but not the way that we serve, but not even the way that we pray. You taught us that we would be known as your disciples by the way that we love. So Lord, help us to see the relationships in our life that need us to look in the mirror for a bit. Help us to see where it's our responsibility. And when you've shown us, Lord, because you will, Give us the courage to take a step, a step towards the other person in such a way that models that which we would hope that they do, but without any expectation that they will. For that's what love does.
So Lord, as we reflect on your reckless love and what you did to reconcile us back to you, may you teach our hearts what it means to love. And live out your love in the world. Amen.